This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, happy birthday to the internet. I remember back in the 90s when we first started talking about it, it used to get referred to as the information superhighway. Do you remember that? And I also remember when the first ad was posted on the internet and people were outraged. And then it just kind of seemed like the world took off at light speed, didn't it? Giant companies created like Yahoo, Google, remember AOL? Oh, huge. They transformed the landscape. So it's hard to believe it's been 30 years since the birth of the internet. Joining us now to talk about it is Andrew Sullivan, the CEO of the Internet Society. Andrew, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm happy to be here. What is the Internet Society? Uh, The Internet Society is a uh, a charity that uh, was formed in the United States originally, and now we work around the world to try to make sure that the Internet is for everyone. Uh, Everybody deserves uh, access to the Internet, and there's still a lot of people who don't have access to it. And more and more we start to see that the Internet is in trouble around the world, that people have forgotten how many benefits it brings us and how many things, uh, you know, we we get from the Internet. And so we're trying to make sure that everybody remind, uh, remembers that. Why do you say it's in trouble around the world? Well, if you look around, uh, it's very easy. You know, when I first uh, got access to the Internet and, uh, and the Web, as you were talking about just a moment ago, uh, you know, it, Everybody thought that it was a marvelous new technology, and it was an unusual thing. Not everybody had access to it. And so if you ask people, do you want access to this thing, everybody said yes. But now, so many of us have access to it all the time. We practically swim in it. And now we're, all we pay attention to are the, are the you know, negative consequences that occasionally arise because of our access. And we're forgetting all of the benefits that it brings to us. And so that's part of the reason that we're now in a situation where we're starting to lose our enchantment and we're concentrating on the negative things. What I seem to remember when the Internet first started was that it was supposed to be the great, you know, it was a democracy. It was every it was supposed to be free. It was supposed to be openness. It was supposed to be for everyone. And 30 years later, is it fair to say, Andrew, that we've really commodified it like we've really and they're gatekeepers for the Internet? Well, I think that there are definitely people who want to be gatekeepers for the Internet. You know, of course, whenever you have a new technology, there's always somebody who wants to say, hey, I can make all of the money from this and I can own it all. And other people are not going to get the benefits that I do. Uh, Naturally, you know, people always try to do that with new technologies. The nice thing about the Internet is that built into it is this ability for you to do what you want with it and for me to do what I want with it. And we have to, you know, we have to reach back and make sure that that continues to be true. Uh, I think that's the challenge that we're facing with the internet today, which is a little bit different from uh, the challenge we were facing, you know, maybe 30 years ago, 30 years ago when the web was first, uh, uh, first uh, becoming available to everyone and people were starting to get onto the internet as we experience it today. The, the challenge was just getting people access. But now the challenge is to make sure that this technology remains the vibrant thing that it was intended to be, something that is exactly, as you were saying, uh, open to everyone and, and empowering of individuals. And what do you think today prevents that? Well, a, a big challenge is, of course, uh, that there are these very large corporations that, uh, uh, you know, that, that influence the way that we, we use the Internet, uh, that, that are sort of mediate for us, you know, I mean, various social media companies, various, uh, you know, the very large search engines and so on. And they're a big part of how we experience this. Uh, but the other thing that's happening is that we're starting to see a lot of regulation that is intended uh, really to make sure that this is a commodity that is well controlled. And most of those uh, impulses 
you know, they're well, they're well intended, I think. But the danger is that, you know, we have forgotten that fundamentally the Internet is made up of many, many different systems uh, that are all interoperating together. It's not really one thing. It's a whole bunch of different systems all operating together. And if you start to concentrate on only the small or, or only the few but very large uh, systems, you forget about all of the rest of this infrastructure. And that's when you start to fragment the Internet and break it into little pieces. And that's the danger we're facing today. Can you give us a little history lesson here, Andrew? Like, how did the Internet get started? Uh, it, it's 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 kind of incredible that the Internet works at all. So a million years ago, when I was like just being born, um, the the internet was just a gleam in in some people's eyes. They had this idea that the um, that all of these networks that were starting to to develop around computers that were in those days very large, uh, that they could be shared with one another, so that everybody didn't have to have their own computer, but that different people could use them. Uh, and this was this was started actually as a part of the United States Department of Defense. Um, and gradually they, they built an experimental network and they put it all together. And then they had some other networks that were also, um, also operating and they wanted to hook them together. And by hooking them together, they said, oh, this is a network of networks, the internet. We network different networks together and they all work together by using common basic ways of, of, of talking to one another. And once people started to have this thing, they just, they just, you know, naturally connected to one another because this is a very human thing to do, right? You want to talk to your friends. I want to talk to my friends. So we have some computer networks. We're going to connect to one another. And then uh, Tim Berners-Lee uh, invented the World Wide Web, which is the, um, you know, the, the, the web that we surf uh, even today. And, and he gave that away. He gave it away for free. He said, hey, here's this idea I had. I'll give it to my friends and, and their, his friends uh, tried it out and they, uh, you know, and they gave it to one another. And gradually this thing, you know, sort of carried on around the world. And so what we had was this, this enormous flowering of human sharing uh, that happened uh, almost, almost in spite of the fact that this was originally a, a, a Department of Defense effort and then it became a Department of Commerce effort in the United States and gradually just became a worldwide phenomenon where everybody participates according to their own desires. Uh, you know, that's, it's hard to see when you're just using the Internet, when you're just surfing or whatever, but that's actually fundamentally how this all works, what? that all of the parts of the Internet are collaborating with one another without any central point of control. And uh, it's an incredible human thing to have built as a, as a collective enterprise. When you think back to the 90s then, was there one specific uh, event or moment where you think that's where it really you know, took off? Was it Yahoo? Was it the creation of, of Google? Was it um, you know, Y2K? Like, when was the moment do you think that it really exploded? I think, um, I mean, I was, I'm so old that I actually remember some of these things happening. And um, what, what, what was fascinating to me was to watch this development happen, that what we could see was there was this inspired moment of industrial policy that um, happened among governments of the world where they said, oh yeah, this is a great human thing and we should, we should promote it and we should make sure that you know, various uh, companies can um, can collaborate in this, and by letting go, uh, what we what we saw was this flowering, and then and then you saw Yahoo, and then you saw Google, and then you saw uh, Alta Vista, which is a search engine from like back in the day, and then you saw like the development of the World Wide Web. You saw all of these things happen because what people saw was oh, this hunger to be able to talk to people around the world and to be able to collaborate with other people. You know, it's, it's incredible to think, you know, that what we just went through this terrible pandemic, that there were lots of problems with that, but it was incredible that we were able to communicate with one another, despite all of the shutdowns and everything and, and to reach out and talk to people wasn't perfect, but it was really an opportunity to see oh, here is this magical communication technology. And we decided back in the 90s, oh, yes, this was a good thing uh, for people to be able to reach out and touch one another in that way across, across wires. So, you know, it, it's really a, it's not one particular thing. It's rather this full flowering of humans wanting to, 
you know, wanting to communicate with one another. And that's, that's just such a beautiful thing to me. Yeah, it really was. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Andrew Sullivan, CEO of the Internet Society, talking about the 30th anniversary of really the birth of the Internet kind of worldwide web as we know it today. And he's right that back when you think back to the 90s and all the big things that happened as the Internet was growing, creating, becoming more kind of ubiquitous in all of our homes and in our lives, it did seem like an amazing time, didn't it? I mean, 1996 was when Internet Explorer became a thing. And boy, did that ever take off. At one point, Internet Explorer was used. 95% of people on the Internet were using Internet Explorer. Napster, Google, that was 1998. Uh, Wikipedia, iTunes, 2000-2001. Remember MySpace? Everybody talks about that as such a long time ago. That was 2003 when MySpace came along. That's when Skype came along uh, too. So 2004 was when Facebook happened. So 20 years next year. Uh, YouTube was 2005. Like You look at all that and you think these things are embedded in our daily lives and they're really not that old when we look back like that. This is Mornings with Simi. It's hard to believe it's been almost two years since the attacks at the James Smith Cree Nation and the village of Weldon in Saskatchewan it killed 11 people and injured 17. And all during that time, we've continued to try and learn about why it actually happened. Remember, Miles Sanderson went into medical distress and died after being taken into custody. And he's now the subject of what's called a psychological autopsy. So what is this process all about? I mean, how do you retrace someone's potential motives in a situation like that? Well, Dr. Scott Terrio is an associate professor of psychiatry at Dalhousie University and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So what is a psychological autopsy? Well, a psychological autopsy is a process that was initially developed some years ago now, back in the 50s, but the the purpose is to try to build up an understanding of an individual who, of course, because of the nature of what's happened, is no longer present. So that's why it's called a psychological autopsy, because you have a deceased person who's no longer able to answer questions about, you know, why did I do what I did? Why did I do what I did when I did it? Those sorts of things. So uh, that's, that's the, the basic purpose is to gain an understanding of that individual through sort of the process of the psychological autopsy. Okay, so where do you start? Well, ideally, you would start at the beginning, of course, which is easy enough to say, but I mean, part of the part of the process of a psychological autopsy is that you're trying to build up a picture of this person as a human being. So you want to understand not only what are the acts that led to the interest in the psychological autopsy, ultimately, but you want to understand how that person came to that place in their life. So that obviously would begin at the beginning. So you, you need to understand as much as, you, as one is able to everything about that person. So sort of what was their early life like? What were their developmental milestones like? You know, like when we walk, when we talk, um, how did they do in school? What kind of temperament did they have as a child? And sort of you, you build on that picture. And because you don't have the individual there to give you that history themselves, you you have to rely on other sources of information. So that can be family, that can be people that in the community that knew the individual, it could be um, historical records if there's any available of of school or um, medical issues or the the person's history over time. So you, you, you build up this complex picture of the person by using as many of those sources of information as, as possible to give you an understanding of the mindset of the individual, I guess, is the best way to frame it. Right. Are these becoming more common, Dr. Terry, or, like, or is this something that has always been done? Well, they've been done now in a more formal sense, probably since the 1950s. They, they were originally designed to start in a more a simple kind of way than the context in which we're discussing it here, which is to... Uh, it, 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 it came to the front originally in trying to understand when there were ambiguous cases of death to try to determine whether that person had intentionally meant to kill themselves or it was an accidental death or or whether it was a suicide, for example. So they've, they're they more complicated, of course, when the, the deceased isn't the only person involved in the situation, as is the case here, which is uh, beyond tragic, of course, but it, it's try to try to shed light on sort of 
what are some of the perhaps underlying themes that need to be explored to understand the situation at sort of the broader community level, I think. Right. Okay. And so in a case like this, then, is this, when it comes to what happened two years ago in Saskatchewan, is this necessary for, do you think, the police process? Is it necessary for us to study this? Like, why would it be done? Well, I think the value of doing something like this in in a context like this would be to... Uh, what we, we, we in psychiatry we often think of what we call predisposing factors for somebody to engage in certain behaviors or to develop certain psychiatric illnesses. So, uh, and and of course, in a case like this, we ultimately don't know why uh, what happened happened or why the in this tragic situation why, why the victims were were chosen at the time that they were, and we may never know that in any. Uh, you know, complete another detail, but what we can do is understand by looking at the person's history in the greater context of both their community and their life, what are some of the issues that might perhaps underlie this? Are there issues of systemic racism? Are there issues of poverty? Are there missed opportunities in life? Are there, is there a history of abuse? Are there problems with substance use? I mean, all of those things are important not only to understand this particular individual, but more broadly to understand how those kind of uh, issues can impact on communities more broadly and how they uh, intersect with uh, issues of potential violence. So is this something that is studied, do you think any, or we should perhaps be studying this every time we have one of these? I know know there was talk about this as well after what happened in Nova Scotia in 2020 with the mass shooting there. It's necessary, isn't it, Dr. Terrio, to try to get some answers yeah, I think it's helpful to sort of get answers and probably even more important, help get directions to find more answers. Because, of course, unfortunately, with these kind of events, there's often more questions than there are answers. I, I think that one of the things that people do need, however, to be mindful of is that <clears throat> if they're not, you, you can't really use it as a preventative tool, if you know what I mean. So you, you can't say, well, we can understand this individual in this situation enough so that we can predict when this kind of thing will happen again somewhere else with someone else because the uh, the the ability to sort of do that at such a fine grain level is really simply not there. So you're right. you run into all sorts of issues about sort of well any number of people could meet a similar kind of profile. So it's doesn't doesn't work at that level of detail. No. So you're looking. We're not looking for patterns or things like that. Are we looking for triggers so we can understand them better? Yeah, you're looking for you're looking for sort of some, what are some of the predisposing factors that led to this behavior, and you're looking to what I generally would call the precipitating factors. What what were the events that occurred just prior to the event in question to maybe act as a trigger for this particular episode, set in the broader context of that whole person's life, right? So, and that that might provide information about how we both change things upstream if you think of it that way and then closer to to the source of the actual sort of event itself right it's really more like i guess a personality study or it's not it's not a criminal investigation i think that's what sometimes people think it is a criminal investigation that's not what this is no no it's it's a separate from a criminal investigation i mean uh the police are interested in what happened and how it happened but uh, uh, it's really psychology and psychiatry that are interested in why it happened, when it happened, in the person that it happened to, right? So that that's more a function of sort of understanding the person in, in both their individual life and in their broader life and where they were living. Is this a growing area of research, would you say? Is there more demand for this kind of information? It's hard to say. I mean, I've been involved in one case, as you know. I mean, it's, uh, fortunately, these kind of uh, events are relatively rare, which is a, a blessing in Canada. I mean, I suspect that it's um, sadly more frequent in, in the United States, but I, I don't have statistical data on how often that's done. Right. So this is, it's an interesting process, though, to, to do this. How long would it generally take? Well, it varies depending on a number of factors. So you know, ideally, you want collateral information, and the more the better. So it's a matter of uh, seeking out collateral information. So that includes family, friends, perhaps neighbors, that sort of thing. So to some degree, it de- it depends on uh, 
the individual involved and what that those relationships were like, uh, in part because as well, if you're talking to these individuals, you have to be both mindful of that they've had their own trauma related to this and uh, yeah. you know, careful in, in, in managing with uh, those issues as well. So, And then, like I've said, you've got collateral information. So in some cases, you have voluminous uh, files, especially if the person has a mental health or addictions history. And sometimes you, you don't, right? So sometimes you have, for example, the loner who really doesn't have many relations, doesn't have a lot of history uh, with the uh, police or other services because they've just sort of uh, led that kind of lonely existence. So it, uh, the lens depends on sort of all that, that material and how long that takes to sort of pull all that together into a synopsis, really. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. That's Dr. Scott Terrio, who's an associate professor of psychiatry at Dalhousie University. We're talking about the issue of psychological autopsies that are sometimes done to figure out the why something happened. For instance, in this case, it's a psychological autopsy that is being done into what happened two years ago at the attacks on James Smith Cree Nation and the village of Weldon in Saskatchewan. 11 people were killed, 17 injured. And you may remember Miles Sanderson went into medical distress and died after being taken into custody. Police believe he was the attacker, but this is part of the process to figure out what happened. How did that unfold and why did it unfold the way that it did? There's still so many questions about that. This is Mornings with Simi. It was a big day yesterday. It was the day that the whole Simon Fraser University varsity football program cancellation situation went to court and was also really the first time to hear some of the arguments from the university about why they did this. I think that's what I was looking forward to the most. So what happened? Joining us now is Mark Nara, who's the lawyer for the SFU football players and a former BC line himself. Mark, good morning. Good morning. So where are we at with this process? So we had a legal argument yesterday uh, for a full day in court, essentially asking the judge to order SFU to reinstate uh, the football team, reinstate the coaches, and make their best efforts, all reasonable efforts, to put a season together for 2023. And uh, so we're waiting for the judge to make a decision. Okay, so what were some of the things that you heard? Like, was there anything that surprised you in the university's arguments? Well... You know, one of the main things that the university is arguing is that the program is now in such a disarray given the the moves that they've made. So when they canceled the program, they fired the coaches, they canceled the season. They had a season already set uh, in this Texas Lone Star Conference. They canceled the season. Uh, the kids were told to pack their bags and leave. Uh, some kids, well, I'm calling them kids, young men. Uh, some of the young men were... Uh, trying to find other places to play. So the university was relying on the disarray at the moment to say, look, even though we caused the disarray, the disarray is such that we cannot put the season back together. So they were they were really relying on their own destructive actions as a basis to deny the order. And we simply said all the all the actions that have been taken were a result of them. They're the ones that had a season and then canceled it. They're the ones that fired everybody all this can be put back fairly easily. Did we hear the why in anything yesterday? Well, the why's always been the uncertainty of playing football without having a conference. So uh, this Texas conference gave notice in January, late January this year, they wouldn't renew the contract. That would have allowed SFU to play this full year, 2023. You know, football goes roughly till November. So it would allow them a year to figure out where to play, whether it's the Canada West Conference, which they played in the past, or the NIAI, which they also played in the past. And uh, But they say the uncertainty of a year without knowing where they're going to play is too destructive to the program, and thus they had to shut it down. Now, you know, on an objective view, when you really look at it, it doesn't seem to make much sense that that's the reason. So it, it, it always it sur- you surmise that there's something else going on, but we haven't really got to the bottom of that. Okay, so it was thought that this was going to be a one-day process. Do you know when um, the decision might come down? No, it could be a week or two. I mean, it, you know, it's a pretty... Uh, we're asking the judge to take a pretty bold step to put the program back together and ask SFU to continue. So we think it's a step that's 
that's uh, legitimate, that's, that the law provides for us to ask for. But uh, I think the judge needs to think about, you know, how, how he's going to get there and, and what the implications of the order either agreeing with us or denying us will be. So it could be a few weeks. All right. Well, keep us up to date on how it goes, Mark. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. That's Mark Nara, who's the lawyer for the SFU football players and a former BC Lion himself, uh, talking about what happened in court yesterday. Of course, the players have applied for an injunction to reinstate the football program. You know, you've never really seen anything like this happen before when it comes to a university program, especially an athletic program. So that's also fascinating about this process. So we wait for the decision, find out what goes on there. This is Mornings with Simi. There are some questions this morning about how the Vancouver School Board is spending part of its budget. I mean, if you've got money put aside to feed hungry students, you would think that it all gets spent, right? Because certainly there are hungry kids out there. So what we're wondering is what the VSB is doing with money that is coming from the province specifically for these school lunch programs. Let's find out what is going on here. So Jennifer Reddy is with us now, One City Vancouver School Board trustee. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hi there. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you explain to us like what is happening here? Where is this money coming from? Well, um, I was actually uh, really pleased to see that um, the province has recognized that poverty is increasingly uh, impacting families and kids in BC. And so there's um, a large uh, sum of money of which Vancouver School District gets $5.5 million um, for this upcoming school year, um, specifically to cover food programs for kids. Okay, so what's happening with that money? Yeah, so last night um, we had our budget deliberations um, for the upcoming 23-2024 uh, budget. Um, and I brought a motion actually to ensure that all of that money, the full amount of $5.5 million, is added on to our existing uh, funding allocated <clears throat> for food programs. Um, and unfortunately, um, that motion uh, was not successful. And so that means that uh, $1.8 million uh, of the funds in total allocated for food programs won't be going to food programs. In fact, part of it will go to cover general operational expenses. Well, wait a minute. How can it do that if it was meant to go towards school lunch programs? That's a really good question. It's something I'm so um, concerned about because it sends a message to me that we're not hearing that kids are hungry and that kids are still facing stigma in asking uh, adults for support to access uh, breakfast and lunch programs. Um, my worry um, is that this, these funds are meant to be added to, not to displace our existing funds for food programs. Um, so the fact that the motion failed, um, I think, says a lot about our willingness to uh, address the issues that kids are facing in elementary schools, secondary schools on a daily basis. Okay, so just so people understand here as well, this money can't be rolled over, right? That's not how the school district budgets work. That's correct. So um, it's an annual budget. So what I was uh, looking for is um, to ensure that the $5.5 million is added to our total um, allocation for food program budget. Um, and instead, it's um, sort of um, in this way being used to displace existing funds. So our existing funds, uh, which include $1.8 million, will no longer be allocated to food programs because now we have this uh, provincial funding. Okay, so they're just kind of replacing the money in there and then moving the money that was in there somewhere else. Yes, which uh, doesn't increase. It doesn't add. Okay, that doesn't seem to go with the spirit of what this money was intended for. What was the discussion like on this? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, um, what I had uh, wanted to highlight um, for uh, folks and for also on behalf of parents and families that I hear from is that poverty is affecting families in many ways. One of them is food insecurity. I mean, you and I can see walking down the um, aisles in a grocery store how expensive food is becoming. And we know from teachers how difficult it is to work with kids who are hungry. And so it's such an essential component of um, making uh, the scene in schools equitable so that people can come with uh, full stomachs and be able to learn so that these are kids um, that can um, be supported in their learning journey. So unfortunately, that discussion didn't take place at the board. Um, it was much more about um, sort of we're doing enough um, and and this should, should be sufficient. Um, so my worry is that this perception 
from the decision-making point of view, doesn't reflect what kids uh, would be experiencing. So um, I am concerned about what that will mean for kids the next school year. There's been a lot of, it feels like, concerns about kind of the VSB in the last little while. Like, for instance, are the meetings open to the public? It's a good question. Um, not all of the meetings are open to the public. Um, there is a, a calendar online. That's how I go. I mean, I'm a second term trustee. Um, I go on to the calendar on the public calendar to make sure, is this meeting online? Is it in person? Where is it going to be? So um, technically speaking, in my point of view, um, if it isn't a private session, it's open to the public. Um, but unfortunately, that's not clear and, or consistent. Okay, and why is that? It feels like, I know it started during the pandemic, but it feels like not much has changed. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. I do know that in the School Act, it does require school districts to have meetings open uh, to the public. And so for me, that interpretation enables us to open the doors, not actually reduce the ways in which the public can access us. Yeah, it just feels like lately I'm, I'm seeing a lot of stories like this about the school board. Now this, you know, school lunch program as well. When it comes to the school lunch program, what are you hearing from schools about the need? Uh, well, for one, um, not all schools have uh, a food program. And so some families, if they can't get into their neighborhood school um, and that neighborhood school also has a lunch program, they're impacted twice by affordability and access. So they can't get to the neighborhood school that's within uh, walking or rolling distance from their house, but they also now can't access the food program. So if they get put in to another school that doesn't have a food program, now they have to find a way to get there and also find and, uh, food provision. So because of this inconsistency and this expectation that food insecurity isn't as bad as we think, um, this is the impact on families is that they can't even choose the schools that they are um, that are in their neighborhood um, or the schools that they're being allocated to don't have a food program. Um, and so they're having to make some difficult choices. Um, I'm not sure how families make ends meet. Um, I do think the stigma of having to disclose that you need food at the school that you're being registered in is a very huge barrier for people that um, causes a lot more in access to education than there needs to be. Okay, so is this is this going to be revisited at all that you know of, or is this a done deal, what was voted on and how this is going to be distributed? I mean, I want to do this work for kids and families. I will definitely raise it again um, and again and invite folks that if they're comfortable, that if they are facing food insecurity and um, having problems accessing food programs, to please come and speak to me. Come to your uh, board meetings as much as you can. Uh, come and speak because um, we don't know what we don't know. And actually, folks that are really marginalized don't have access to these decision-making um, spaces. And so the fact that this budget decision was made last night, people that actually need that decision to be made in their favor may not know what's coming down. So that's my worry is that, you know, we'll forge ahead without knowing the impacts until it's too late and the next budget cycle is a chance to correct that. But I will bring it back again and again as often as I can. All right, we'll wait and see what happens. Thank you for your time on that. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. So, you know, we've been thinking about this whole Simon Fraser University story. And, you know, there's one perspective that we really wanted to hear about, and that is students. And we're talking the general student population here, not just those in athletics or in the athletic department. I'm sure the university, you know, the administration is thinking, well, oh, no, no, we're just talking about some people, well, some student athletes in one department. Well, that really isn't the case. So to join us now to talk more about this is Marie Haddad, who's a student advocate and former vice president of equity and sustainability at SFU. Marie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand that there has been kind of an open letter written to administration. What was that about? Yeah, so... Um, A bunch of students, a coalition came together, um, student groups of the SFU SOCA, SF PERG, and some representatives from um, the Student uh, Advisory Committee as well. Um, And it was really about the institution saying that they weren't hearing enough from students, um, which typically is used as a tactic to say that, you know, we can buy more time to keep pushing this off. Um, so we decided to actually come out and make a strong letter, an open letter, where anyone could sign on to it. 
And now we have about 281 signatures as of this morning uh, with a bunch of different um, folks from the community and from the university as well. Um, But just saying that, um, you know, if the university is going to standardize its values on EDI, which is foundational on freedom and democracy, if the institution is not going to take up democracy, Uh, democratic processes to um, make a decision like this, then we are not actually following through with our EDI values. Yeah, And why is that? So how do you connect those two things, this football program and EDI values? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the biggest thing is that the majority of uh, the football as of now is part of the Black, Indigenous or people of color communities. And I think it's so essential to understand how, um, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all in the experiences of such a decision like this. And there's going to be folks who are impacted on a greater measure just by, you know, being taken out of an athletic position, something that can help them even get into higher education in the first place, um, and something that can help them actually do better for their communities as well and to... um, actually bring more advocacy for their communities too. Do you think that was overlooked, Marie? Just that idea that, and I've always felt that, that you know, getting kids involved in sports, it can be a bit of an equalizer. Yeah, of course. I think it was completely overlooked because we know this. Um, I, I'm sure there's so many reports that discuss how essential a sporting um, program is to bring in students. It's, it's called an equitable process um, and inclusion into higher education. And uh, by basically terminating a program like this, we are creating less opportunities at the university to um, really um, get rid of this institutional or systemic barrier into higher education. And um, a lot of people do definitely use their skills, um, including their sporting skills, um, to actually receive education. And it's, it's, it's going to take a big hit for sure, especially since the football team is the biggest team um, at SFU right now. Yeah, so what has the student reaction been like? Like, what have you heard from students? Well, students are really enraged first that the institution has been taking this decision without our consultation. Specifically, the Simon Fraser Student Society um, is a major stakeholder at the um, Simon Fraser University, especially since the um, Uh, Student Society in and of itself donated $10 million to um, renovate and renew the Terry Fox field that actually houses the football team. So we feel as if like our voices have really been eliminated from this process and it hasn't been democratic. And I think that the institution um, who typically holds itself um, at a high standard of consulting students and stakeholders And um, folks who are affected by decisions is not actually doing that in this decision. And it's shocking as well, because if you were at the injunction the other day, the university is talking about how, you know, it's their right to cut any program without any um, democratic process or no consultation. And they could do it at any time without any announcement or further information. uh, basically announcement. Yeah. So and, um, th- I heard that too. So th- how does yeah. that, how do you feel when you hear that? Because you think, well, wait a minute, why am I committing to a school and a program if this university right. is telling me they could get rid of it at any time? I think that's the worrisome part because this doesn't just affect football. This affects every single other sporting team in the university. And I think this calls like a greater, a greater threat to many of the other programs. And I think, um, it should it should really worry folks coming into the university who don't necessarily feel that, you know, they're going to be housed in a space that actually really cares for them. And that's that's a big worry for me. And I know it's a big worry for others as well. Is there a lot of, do you think, students that are paying attention to this process? I would say so. Um, uh, the Simon Fraser Student Society, who has a council which houses about 60 to 70 representatives from all other student groups, they also signed on to our open letter. So they're very aware of this um, issue. And I know there's other students who are really committed to this as well. I'm not the only student advocate who is on this project. And um, 
Yeah, I don't think it's just a small matter in the athletic community. It's definitely a bigger measure. I know that there are folks who are coming out who don't even play sport and who don't even really know much about sport either, who are coming out and educating themselves and understanding how this is a very, very big threat to not only the students, but sporting at SFU in general. All right. Well, Marie, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Yeah, of course. I appreciate that. I appreciate your work on this one. That's Marie Haddad, who's a student advocate and former vice president of equity and sustainability at SFU. Just We wanted to get an idea of just beyond athletics, beyond the football program, what about the rest of the population at SFU? How do they feel about this? And that was a, a very good indicator of, uh, yeah, students are paying attention. Now, here's the irony with this. And I, I, you know, of course, I think about my personal connection here. I went to Simon Fraser University. I chose that school when I graduated from high school back in 1989, okay, a long time ago. And I'll never forget telling my mom that that's where I was going to go. And she was, she was disappointed that I wasn't going to go to UBC, which had been her alma mater. She graduated from UBC and she really wanted me to go there. And I was choosing to go to SFU. And so she said to me, yeah, but that's the hippie university. That's what my mom said to me. And she said it because when she was going to university, that was when Simon Fraser University started in the late 1960s. And she's right it kind of was the hippie university because it was founded as a sign of the times that students wanted a different type of school, not in the button down ivory tower at the time of what they saw as UBC. They wanted something more open, more accountable. And that was the idea behind Simon Fraser university. And so I've been thinking about that, just the irony all these years later, of how the school is behaving very much now like an institution that has been around for a long time that is protecting itself and making decisions without accountability. And I thought, boy, it sure has come a long way from what it was founded as, you know, more than 50 years ago. And that just is stuck in my head with this story, uh, kind of still making news. And we will be continuing to follow it because like Marie was saying, a lot of people being paying very close attention to what the arguments the university was making in court uh, yesterday. So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about it. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that BC has an active volcano? I know, first thing you think of when you hear that is go, well, is there any chance that it might actually erupt? Turns out a team of scientists are actually conducting research on Mount Meager, that is the volcano. So let's learn about this research. Dr. Glenn Williams-Jones is with us now, a professor and co-director of Simon Fraser University's Center for Natural Hazards Research. Good morning. Good morning. Tell me about Mount Meager. What do we know about it? Well, Mount Meager is um, it's about 160 kilometers uh, north of us. It's just up uh, Pemberton Meadows and up on the, the Lillooet. Um, so it's a volcano that has been growing uh, for probably almost 2 million years. Um, sounds like a long time, but uh, geologically, that's, uh, that's not very, very long. Um, and we do know that it last erupted about 2,400 years ago. So again, not a long time in, in the geological time scale. Right. Long for us, though. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So why do we say it's an active volcano? So in part because um, we can see that there are volcanic gases coming through the surface. Now, the f- there's a fuzzy line between active, dormant. Um, if we say something is extinct, we, there's basically been no activity, any signs of anything in the last 10,000 years. So we're in a, a blurry zone, um, but uh, certainly, you know, there's no signs that it's going to erupt tomorrow. Um, but the important thing is that we do do research on this um, because we know that when it last erupted about 2,400 years ago, it was on the scale of the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Oh, okay. Because 160 kilometers away is really not that far. It's not that far. And in fact, um, because of the the research that has been going on by a number of universities and and collaborators, uh, we know that in fact, the ash from that eruption made it all almost all the way out to Calgary. So events here on our coast can actually have a a fairly significant impact uh, across the country. Now, when you say the words like active volcano, I tend to think of volcanoes like Kilauea. In, in Hawaii. 
Yeah, and and that's one type of, of volcano, and that's what most people think about, that uh, very runny lava that sort of flows out. Um, but there's a range of different uh, types of, of volcanoes. And... Um, Mount Meager actually kind of falls into something much more similar to, again, Mount St. Helens or Mount Rainier. It's what we call a, uh, a stratovolcano. The difference that most Canadians of BCers who have ever been up there would go, well, hang on, it doesn't look like Mount Rainier. It's not a nice pointy yeah. ice, ice cream cone uh, volcano. And that in, in part is because we have these big glaciers over time that have just chewn up uh, the mountains and, and our volcanoes. Okay, so if there's research being done, what kind of research? What does this involve? So it, it's, again, a, really a big team effort uh, from the Geological Survey of Canada, U, UBC, SFU, University of Alberta, um, and, and it's been a essentially a whole range of studies trying to map the geology, when what were the deposits for the last eruption, um, trying to use geophysics to image down beneath the subsurface because, you know, try to almost take an x-ray of the volcano and see what can we tell about where the magma is, if any, um, how hot is it uh, down there. Um, and in fact, we even very recently, um, just uh, late last September, um, had a team of expert cave search and rescue um, go into these ice caves on, uh, on Mount Meager where these volcanic gases are coming out. And they went in with breathing gear because it's full of toxic uh, levels of gases to try to find the source of those gases. And they did. Okay, and what's the source? So uh, it, the source is uh, what we call a fumarole. So it's a little crack in the ground or a series of cracks where hot volcanic gases come out. In this case, the gases are about 90 degrees Celsius, so just around boiling for that elevation, not overly hot, um, and not unsurprising for a volcano in this kind of state. We know that Meager has lots of uh, big geothermal uh, system around it. The Meager hot springs are, are sort of one example. And in fact, there's a lot of interest in the geothermal energy side of things. So one of our uh, collaborators, uh, Meager Creek Development Corp, have, are, are looking at developing a project on the flank of Meager to create green energy and, and actually green hydrogen. So those kinds of studies all come together to try to tease out um, what's happened in the past at Mount Meager so that we have a chance of saying, well, you know, what could happen in the future? What little subtle signals might we look for uh, of something changing? So is that the most active volcano that we know of in the province? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's, the, it's the only one where we see any kind of obvious surface evidence uh, for activity. Um, but we do know that there are other volcanoes in the province that have erupted much more recently. Um, CX uh, volcano uh, in the Niska Lava Beds, uh, just northwest of Terrace, erupted in the mid-1700s. Uh, there's a, another one further north, uh, Lava Fork, um, that erupted, we think, somewhere between the 1800s, maybe as late as the early 1900s. Um, so we're going to try to do some work up there uh, next summer if, if all works out. But working on Canadian volcanoes is tricky because they're hard to get to. Very often they're, they're quite remote. So, okay, so I'm curious. And so if those other two volcanoes have erupted in the last, you know, few hundred years and Meager has erupted for 2,400 years, why do we classify that one as active and the other one's not? Because the other ones, we don't see any evidence of activity. Uh, the, and the style of eruption in the case of Siax and Lava Fork, um, they're more like the Hawaiian volcanoes, um, but specifically they, they tend to be that style. It's called a cinder cone volcano. They, by and large, tend to be a one-shot deal. Uh, small eruption, lava flows out, pretty important lava flows, um, but then it's done. Um, but this is one of the things that is, is still a challenge, again, given you know, the size of our province, um, is to do the monitoring to be looking for any change in, in volcanic activity. So uh, in partnership with uh, Natural Resources Canada, we're starting to develop, uh, they're really leading the charge on developing satellite monitoring for these remote, difficult to access volcanoes. So we want to look for those telltale signals. 
Okay, and so would you say those other ones are dormant then for now? For now, uh, yeah. And and so that's why we are trying to monitor them, at least from satellite. Um, but we've got almost 50 volcanoes that are geologically young. Um, and so, you know, activity within the last 10,000 years or so. Um, the dates on those are, again, very fuzzy because uh, we just don't have the same access, uh, the same level of research being done in Canada as has been done in, in other parts of the world, say, in, in the U.S. So given that we're on the ring of fire, is it like, shouldn't we have more activity? And like, you look at other parts of the world, you look in Japan where they've got this, in Hawaii where all this is going on in the ring of fire. Why don't we have more activity? Um, it's, it's those sort of subtle differences in the geology. Um, the way that these, you know, we're on that ring of fire, which is created by plate tectonics, and how these ocean plates are driven and, and sort of sucked underneath uh, Western North America, that changes how the um, uh, how the magma. You're, I'm looking at my lava lamp here on my desk. How that blob of molten material moves up to the surface to create our, our volcanoes. So there's those subtle idiosyncrasies that that we find here in, in Canada. Um, but you know, 1800, 1900, that is yesterday. So um, it it really is important that that we do more and more research um, on on Canadian volcanoes. And they're cool. <laughs> I get the impression that you think they're cool for oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and they're in my own back door. Um, you know, I, I spend much of my career working in Central and South America, and, and Hawaii for that matter as well. Um, but it's nice to be able to, uh, you know, actually get in the car and drive a couple hours up the road and, and you know, start some, some research. Those Hawaii volcanoes are really something, though, aren't they? They are. And, and you know, it's so impressive. Uh, and it's, it's been really useful from an education perspective is you could get up close. So I, I actually walked up to lava flows and, you know, these are 800 degrees Celsius and scooped out blobs of lava uh, to, to study. So it was accessible. Um, you know, the systems here in, in Canada, by and large, they're, they're, it takes more effort uh, to get there. Well, I'm still curious about what you're going to find. So good luck with your research in Mount Meager. Thanks so much. That is Dr. Glenn Williams-Jones, a professor and co-director at SFU Center for Natural Hazards Research, talking about our most active volcano, which is, yeah, Mount Meager up in the Pemberton Valley there. You look at pictures of it and you would go, that's the most active volcano? So, so curious about what it is they're going to find. By the way, my hot tourist tip for the day is, uh, Dr. Williams-Jones suggested this. I am going to heartily endorse this. If you've never done this, take a trip to the Nishka Memorial Lava Bed Provincial Park, which is northwest of Terrace. You will not be sorry. You will be shocked that this is in BC. It is a Lava Bed Provincial Park. It is stunning, stunning scenery. It's up in the Nass Valley. It's gorgeous. You will be amazed at this. And as Dr. Williams-Jones pointed out, it is the most recent kind of eruption. It's thought to be the site of Canada's most recent volcanic eruption and lava flow. Uh, and it is really quite something to see in person. So check that out if you get a chance.